Oh, great people of the cloud. This episode is brought to you by online IT training from sponsor IT Pro TV. And because you, yes, you are so very great, IT Pro TV is offering you a seven day free trial and 30% savings off of any plan you choose. Visit itpro.tv slash day two cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to exercise your greatness. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about data center migrations. You know, for most people, you don't start out with nothing and you get to build everything in the cloud. You probably have an existing data center that has applications that, I don't know, make your business money. So you might have to move some of those as well. And there's a lot of planning that goes into that. Ethan, what, what stuck out to you in the conversation? Well, Sarah makes the point along the way as we chat with her that bringing in an outside party, some help, is probably a good idea because they've done this before and picking up your data center and moving it to the public cloud is hard. This is a complex task with dependencies that you don't even know. And and that's just the cloud side. There's dependencies in your data center you probably don't even know about. <laughs> and Sarah actually talked about that at some length, which was yeah, absolutely familiar. Yeah, and we also jumped into day two. What happens after you're done the migration and you now got to manage this behemoth? So those are the things we're going to be talking about in this episode with Sarah Lean from Microsoft. Enjoy, everybody. Sarah Lean, welcome to day two cloud. In a few sentences, you know, not your whole life story, but can you just describe who you are and, and what you do? Um, yeah, hi guys. Um, so my name is Sarah Lean. I'm a cloud advocate at Microsoft and really my job is to help our customers and our engineering teams interact with each other. And that can be in the form of me presenting at events when we have in-person events or writing blog posts to try and um, make sense of some of our documentation, right, and make it more relatable to some of our customers. So that's kind of what I do at the moment. <laughs> okay, makes sense. <laughs> that, that hit me as funny because, Sarah, you go uh, help our customers and engineers interact with each other. I, I kind of imagine you sitting in the middle and on the one side of the engineers, <laughs> the other side of the customers. Okay, okay, everyone stand down. We're all going to get along now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's a bit of mediation, maybe sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've definitely been there as well, being that that go between between the customer and the engineers because sometimes engineers they can be a little prickly you know <laughs> so you got to that interpretation <laughs> and customers oh yeah well I didn't want to go there but yeah no absolutely right oh my goodness so the thing that uh, we wanted to talk about today was sort of how you can transition your skill set for those engineers that are you know all on premises today or mostly how can they transfer their skills to the cloud as well as transfer their workloads to the cloud yeah. to big but very intertwined uh, goals to have as an engineer. I know, uh, personally, I started with data center operations. That's what I was comfortable with. And moving to the cloud was not only a technical journey, but just like a personal one where I had to change sort of how I approach things. Is Did you come from a similar place? Yeah, I did. So I came out of uni and went straight into that first level help desk job. And I've kind of worked my way through the career ladder, if you want to call it that, you know, working second level, third level consultancy. And all of that's been on-prem. All of that's been around either physical hardware, virtualization. Um, and the last 
two or three years, maybe four years, have been cloud and some kind of mix of on-prem as well. So I've definitely been on that journey as well, trying to transition my skills from, you know, racking and stacking hardware to <laughs> deploying it via code. <laughs> uh, I also thought racking and stacking was a was a fun way to describe things. First time my wife heard it, she's like, you were doing what with the what, what? I was like, yeah, just, you know, we're putting things in racks and you don't really stack them on top of each other, but I guess you kind of do. Yeah. <laughs> so I know yeah. personally, I started hearing whispers about the cloud probably in like 2012. I think I was at a Microsoft conference and they were all excited about server 2012 and all the things that were new in that. But then they mentioned this Azure thing and I was like, what is that? And I, I had no idea, but then they were also telling me in the same presentation that Server 2012, you were going to use a touch interface for it. And I was like, bah, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, maybe they weren't right about the Server 2012 touch interface, but I think they yeah. might have been right about the cloud thing. When did, uh, when did you first start hearing the rumblings of cloud? To be honest, I think it was probably around the same time frame, 2012, 2013. I remember one of my colleagues coming back from Microsoft Tech Ed or something around that time. And they were talking about, and I think it was called Windows Engine back then, which is obviously mm. now Microsoft Engine. And we were using Windows Engine, which was cloud-based, completely cloud-based to try and manage a customer's um, environment, You know, try and do that remote control, try and patch everything remotely. Um, Azure wasn't really something we saw back then in 2012, but obviously that was the start of the cloud products. And then I think it was about 2016 when I started to actually get into Azure. So, yeah, it's, cloud's been around for longer than we probably remember <laughs> or realize. Yeah, yeah, and, and and so many different iterations as well. It, it yeah. hasn't been the the nice interfaces that we're all used to seeing today. Uh, it was a little more command liney and cumbersome back in the day oh yeah yeah because uh, um, i think i was at an event i think it was last year and someone was talking about the evolution of windows intune or microsoft intune and they showed a screenshot of what it was like back in 2012 2013 and i was like that looks so chunky and horrible and then you look at it now <laughs> and it's so it's so pretty <laughs> Oh, geez. Yeah, I think I came into contact and we could probably do a whole show just on Intune and its evolution. I don't, that's a rabbit hole. We don't need to go down. But yeah, I used it around the same time frame, and to see the progress that's been made has been, you know, pretty tremendous. Yes. But uh, the thing that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit was you hear a lot of people making noise about migrating your data center to the cloud. And sometimes they talk about the operational simplicity. Maybe they're talking about, a better TCO, like, are there actual business drivers for making that move and getting out of the data center business? So I've, I've spoke to tons of customers around this and everybody's got a different driver. Like you say, some people are hunting for that um, streamlined kind of operational sense. Others are doing it because their data center lease has come to the end and, you know, their CEO or the guy in charge or woman in charge have heard about cloud and they're like, right, we need to go cloud. And that's their business driver just because it's the buzzword. Um, other organizations, and there was a customer last year that had to get out of their data center because there was a government train line. You know, the government had bought that bit of land where their data center was um, on and they were building a train track right through it. So, <laughs> you know, some of them are business drivers. Ones are you can't even control it drivers. Um, and some of them are just because it's a buzzword. And rightly or wrongly, that's that's kind of the, the scale of things for organizations when they're looking to this migrate to Azure or another cloud platform. 
Is there a scenario where you shouldn't move, uh, or maybe that hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, is a is a better solution than uh, you know just pick everything up and drop it in one public cloud? I think so. I think you know some organisations, maybe your smaller startups that don't have lots of legacy, can go all cloud, and that's that's really easy for them. But a lot of organisations that have the legacy stuff have years and years of technical debt. Some things will have to be left on-prem. Um, I was actually talking to a customer this week about it, and they were talking about how they move SCCM, or I think we've changed that to MECM. I can't remember what that <laughs> all means, but they were talking about how they move that infrastructure they've got on-prem up into Azure. And I was thinking, most of that can be moved, but things like your Pixie Boot point probably has to stay on-prem because you don't want that latency from your office all the way up into the cloud and the security risk of potentially somebody hijacking that pixie boot on your laptop. So, yes, there absolutely is parts that can be moved up to the cloud, but then hybrid cloud makes sense for other parts, depending on your infrastructure. Hmm. Yeah, which which makes me feel good. I mean, I'm a I'm an on-premises guy from way back and all this stuff moving <laughs> to the cloud, and I'm going yeah. – because occasionally you run into these projects where it just feels like people abandon common sense and good design because we've got to get everything in the cloud. You know, that That's fading yeah. a bit, that we're becoming more mature in how we look at these designs, but still there's that attitude there where I hear of, we got told from above that we have to move to cloud, so we're just picking it all up and moving. It's like, yeah, but this is dumb. Yeah, we know it's dumb, maybe the engineering folks are saying, but the, it's been yeah. forced upon them and i think that's where some of the issues come because some of the it engineers understand that hybrid's probably the way forward but the people above them have just heard all cloud let's move cloud i don't want any tin left on prem and trying to figure out that right balance and pass that message on without seeming like you're against cloud is is the way that a lot of customers are having to address some of these things yeah yeah I, i've definitely seen that where somebody is making cogent arguments against moving something to the cloud, but they come off as just no cloud ever. And then they're immediately written off uh, as being part of the conversation because people think, oh, there's, you know, Brent's just being that that old guy who doesn't believe in moving anything to the cloud. And, and don't worry about him. He has nothing, you know, yep. to, useful to provide. <laughs> it, on, yep. on the people side of things, uh, so assuming I am, Brent, and maybe I do want to move some stuff to the cloud. What sort of skill sets are transferable to a cloud environment and kind of which ones are not? So I think I've been surprised myself moving on that journey from on-prem to the cloud, what skills are still transferable, right? So your basic IT troubleshooting, like how do you fix something that's broken? Those skills are still, it's still IT at the end of the day. It's just IT at the other end of, you know, your internet connection. Um, that still is relevant. Um, certain things around security and identity and how you protect that perimeter. Your perimeter has changed now, but you're still having to protect it. Those still mm -hmm. are there. Um, if you're running like IaaS and virtual machines, that's still relevant. Windows Server still runs the same as it does on any virtualization platform. So there's lots of skills that you can still take and then add on on top of that. Obviously, when we talked about earlier, the racking and stacking, you're not doing that anymore. So you need to change. Um, so instead of racking and stacking, you need to learn how to do infrastructure as code or learn how yeah. to do PowerShell or, you know, Chef or whatever your kind of choice is. And that's where you're changing some things. You're ditching that physical mm. skill um, when we all lost blood from server cage nuts and stuff like that. And <laughs> I'm sure we've all got scars um, from them. Um, and now you're changing 
to that new way. So you're going to have PowerShell scars or chef scars on how to deliver these these servers. So there's there's different things, right? Some of it is still very much relevant. Um, another bit you're just having to adapt. We were joking about racking and stacking and uh, and blood. There is some blood of mine in a data center up near where I live, literally from a cage nut. That that is yeah. a thing that happened to me. <laughs> but the, when when we said rack and stack, another thing hit me, which is the appropriate name of Terraform. You know, how are we doing racking and stacking now? Terraform. What a great product name in that context, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes, indeed. Uh, Yeah, I don't know why server manufacturers try to make everything as sharp as possible. It's like they literally roll out the sheet metal and then they sharpen the edges just to make sure they can get a little blood in that computer. Like, I didn't didn't know that servers ran on blood, but apparently they do and they're thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. I do, I have to say, and aside here, one of the things I actually do miss is that physical act of putting things into racks. And it's one of the things that I've been a little sad to lose as the cloud. But what it just means is I buy stuff for my home lab now and tinker with that. <laughs> so just look at that physical tinkering uh, need out of my system. Sarah, one of the things that you touched on was the difference in the way that you approach protecting your environment when you move stuff to the cloud because you don't have all the traditional security products you might have in your data center. So if you could just walk me through, what what are the differences in your security approach when it comes to provisioning things in the cloud versus what you're running on-premises? Yeah, so a lot of organizations, um, rightly or wrongly, focus on physical security. So they would often secure their data center or their building that all their IT infrastructure was in, and then they would assume that because that building, that physical location was secure, they'd be okay. Again, rightly mm-hmm. or wrongly, that's how a lot of people <laughs> thought about it. But now we change. We don't have that physical um, aspect to think about. That's that's your provider, your cloud provider's thing. So you have to think about it differently and you have to focus on, do I have the right ports open? Do I have the, the wrong ports like shut? Um, and how do you access stuff as well? Um, so thinking about like virtual machines and how you access them, Yes, you might be using something like an express route um, to connect, which is encrypted and secure. But then should you maybe look at something like um, just-in-time access? So all those ports, all your your RDP ports are all shut down until you request access and then they open up when you need them and only need them. So there's different things you can do and leverage around making it much more secure. And that's where you have to kind of pivot a little, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's definitely a different approach because it the security layers that you would normally have you might not have, and also yeah, right, really or wrongly, the the physical yeah. physical security is no longer under your control. <laughs> you know, you you ceded that over to whoever your public cloud provider is. I really do like the that just in time, or also I think there's a there's a Bastion product that I know at mm-hmm. Microsoft Azure has. Or you can just set up a Bastion host in whatever environment, and it gives you that, okay, this is how you get in, but then you can add additional layers of checking and security at that Bastion yep. host level before you let them any deeper into the environment. Oh, yeah. Yep. Cool. So, Sarah, I want to I want to move the conversation ahead to some of your migration projects, because you've done some, some <laughs> of these real-world pro- projects here. Um, yep. So, yeah, let's drill into that a bit. I mean, obviously, we know you can't reveal any confidential info, as fun as that would be. But can you uh, set the <laughs> stage for a migration that you worked on for us? 
Yeah, so um, one of the ones I worked on was um, a data centre lease was up and the company wanted to look at something else because of legacy debt, because lots of things hadn't been updated, company acquisitions, can't say that, um, and, you know, um, staff attrition as well. Lots of things had been left there. Um, we didn't really understand what was in the data centre. We didn't really have a knowledge of how any of it really worked. And lots of it was physically out of date. You know, even trying to get parts on eBay was was starting to become um, troubles, troublesome for us. So once the lease started to run out, we were like, right, we need to think about what our strategy going forward is. And cloud was the buzzword. So it was was kind of decided that we'd take all of that and put it into the cloud. So, okay, so it was time to r- refresh things, figure out what was going to stick around. So was there thought of just keeping it as like another, well, you could do like an upgrade in place where you bring in some new racks and do a row at a time in the same physical build. You could go to another physical building. I mean, d- were those parts of the conversation before a decision was made to actually move some or all of it up to cloud? Um, a little bit. We we talked about replacing it at, with another data centre and just replacing everything like for like. Um, but then we kind of decided that off the top, without doing any kind of cost analysis, that that would be too expensive and that would be just the, the wrong thing going forward. Because you know, traditionally you buy hardware for you know five years or seven years, and we were think, starting to think that yes, it'd be okay right now to go down that physical route again, but in seven years. We just have to do it all over again. So why not just do it now? That was kind of that was kind of the, the roundtable discussion. Um, now I, I think you mentioned like you didn't know what was running in the data center necessarily. There was a lot of discovery that needed to happen in order to. I mean, you can't just migrate things willy nilly, right? You you do have to do yeah. some level of discovery. <laughs> so what? How did you do that discovery? I think a lot of people might think they know exactly what's in their data center and then they actually try to move things. They're like, oh, we forgot about that one server in the bottom yeah. rack that is running an entire application. You know, So how, how did you go through that exercise? Um, so we started off using a tool called Azure Migrate, which is the free product within um, Microsoft Azure to try and do that inventory. You know, you, you stick another virtual machine in and then it goes out and spreads its little tentacles and finds out what the <laughs> servers are and try and does that... Um, you know, try and piece that together so as you understand what all the servers, um, how they interact, you know, what SQL server talks to what other web application and all that kind of stuff. It pulls all that information back in, which we were really lacking. Um, and it was really good at the start, but once we started to show our management what 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 was there and how complex some of that was, um, they kind of decided that they wanted to bring it in a third party, so a migration kind of specialist, um, to try and run this project and do that project. And at that point, they decided that Azure Migrate wasn't fit for purpose. And that was their their decision. That wasn't what I personally thought. And they started using another tool called Mover, which basically does the exact same thing, but that was the partner's tool of choice. So we used two to kind of get that information. So um, yeah, there was a bit of mix and match going on there with the discovery. <laughs> okay. And in that discovery process, you you sort of mentioned there were some more complex components to be moved. Uh, without getting into too many details, I'm, I'm sure you can't go too deep. Um, what was the the complexity that you were seeing there that was going to make it difficult to move uh, some applications or, or servers? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it was just the amount of connections some of our servers had with each other, like how interconnected everything really, really was. Because we, our documentation said one thing, said something like, I'll go with the SQL <laughs> Server example. So we thought this one SQL Server was dedicated to one task and one task only. But when we did that discovery, we found a ton of other servers that were connected into that SQL because people had installed a temporary database into that environment and then it became production um so mm. that's where it started to get really tricky because there was so much undocumented and temporary stuff put in place that we were not expecting and didn't realize was going to be there and it basically was you know that mess you always have behind your desk where all the cables get like tangled <laughs> up and you can't figure out how that's kind of what it looked like once we did the discovery <laughs> yeah yeah oh geez it was the tooling then that just basically helped you deal with that. In other words, it was impossible for a human to say, today we're moving the database because you just couldn't track it all. And so the tool, you relied on the tool to make it all happen for you. Yeah, the tool kind of did all that discovery for us um, and made sure, like we could have done it manually, right? There's tools we could have ran manually um, to see all those TCP connections and stuff. But that would have taken us a really long time and the tool kind of helped just pull it all together and and make it less manual for us. Untangle the cables right. behind your desk, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or at least trace them out a little bit, yeah. Oh, I, mean, I don't even want to look behind to, my desk. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear that story, but it's just so depressing because we think we kind of have control of our environments, but then there's, you know, even when we're careful with our processes and somewhat careful, at least try with our documentation, the reality that we're living with is by and large unknown. Um, yep. and that's, yeah. And a project like this, it's just, it, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, totally. So that's the analysis of the applications. Um, getting back to sort of the business side of thing a little bit, cause I know I've seen some of these migrate tools also try to do like a TCO analysis for you and say, Hey, you're going to save X amount by going to the cloud versus your data center. Um, and it, what's funny is like, I've seen tools where I'll put the same output into some that's been produced maybe by a hardware vendor, and it will say, no, stay on-prem, way cheaper. And then I take those same inputs and put it into, you know, maybe a cloud vendor's tool. And suddenly, oh, no, it's so much cheaper to move it to the cloud. So <laughs> did you, have you gone through that economic exercise with, with some of your projects? And, and did you use one of those TCO tools? Yeah, so... I'm always skeptical of these tools as well, right? Microsoft have a ton of them and we do leverage them for a lot of customer engagements, but I'm very skeptical about them because right now in a lot of environments, people don't track their costs. They don't remember all the tiny little bits that make up a data center, right? They take for granted things like electricity or, you know, um, heating or cooling and they forget about that and they forget about how much it cost them five years ago to buy the hardware and all those tiny little um, buys that you do where you buy extra Cat5 cable or Cat6 cable, right? So the figures you're putting into these TCO calculators are always a little bit skewed um, to begin with. And then... Mm -hmm the vendor might skew them even more so that they skews their view. So I always take them with a little bit of pinch of salt. And I, I'm always telling my customers to do multiple versions of these reports, right? Do the ones where you think you know all the answers and do ones where you inflate the answers a little bit, right? And then somewhere in the middle, 
is going to be actually the reality. <laughs> That's the way I yeah. look at it, rightly or wrongly. Um. <laughs> These tools that have to be incredibly knowledgeable about what you're actually going to be doing in the cloud, what the costs are in the cloud to, to, to truly get what your AWS or Azure, et cetera, bill is going to be. And there yeah. are a number of companies that seem to be doing this, specializing in analyzing your cloud bill and helping you to understand that spend. So if you've got people who are devoting their time to analyzing the bill and figuring it out, if it was as easy as throw software at the problem, you know, these TCO tools would be would be great. Other than that, it's like you say, a pinch of salt. How could you, it's going to be a yeah. rough estimate of kind of what you're going to be consuming, but you won't really know you've been up there for a few months. Oh, yeah. And things always change, right? Like you do the TCO right now and three months later, you've suddenly got a project that no one told you about and you have to throw like 20 odd servers in and then that's your budget and your TCO blown and you're you're getting the (laughs) kick from your boss going, what happened? And you're like, well, that department didn't tell me. So, you know, so, yeah, things change. And these TCO calculators are great for a, a talking point, but they shouldn't be the driver and the decision maker for anybody's move. Uh, Yeah. That's how I look at them. The other thing that I think about when it comes to what happens once you move to the cloud is you now have all this additional capacity that you didn't have before to try out new things. Like you can experiment with all these new services and there's all these shiny new toys. And I feel like that can also have a pretty severe skew on your spending, at least while your engineers ramp up and learn about you know what's available and how they could maybe move some applications around or, or deal with additional demand. Is that something that you've also seen when it comes to uh, a post-migration adoption? Um, yeah, I've seen some customers use, say, like one subscription for everything, for te- dev test, production and you know learning and then they blow the budget and they wonder why and they can't really figure out why because all four environments are running within that one subscription so Mm -hmm. I'm always I don't want to put extra management on top and have all these multiple subscriptions on the go but I think it's good to segment certain things and then you can put certain permissions so certainly like in Azure you can use um, policy to try and restrict some things to try and stop people from deploying those big M series VMs that cost thousands and thousands of pounds or dollars a day. Um, but no, don't restrict them from learning, but restrict their spend so that they're not blowing your entire yearly budget on a test environment, right? That That's kind right. of what I always say as well. So yeah, absolutely. Let your people learn, but try and keep it within certain controls without being too managerial. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Interrupting Ned, our guest, and probably myself to talk about our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV isn't a reality TV show about an IT professional making the world a better place because they did that already. It was called Nick Burns Computer Guy, and you can't improve on perfection. Rather, IT Pro TV is online IT training. Because you, as a day two cloud listener on the bleeding edge of IT, seriously, you're bleeding, walk away from the AWS console. IT Pro TV is offering you a free seven-day trial and then 30% off of any of their plans you choose. What training does IT Pro TV offer, Ethan? I can hear you asking as your flying car on autopilot takes you to work. Well, lots of things, including courses on various aspects of AWS, Azure, Linux, DevOps, and development. Will IT Pro TV have exactly what you're looking for? I don't know. So you should go check them out and see. There are over 4,000 hours of on-demand training. The hosts are engaging. They present their information in like a talk show format instead of a super boring lecture. 
They're live every day, and the shows go from studio to web in 24 hours, and you can find the courses easily. They're listed by category, certification, and job role. Now, you can stream these courses on demand from anywhere in the world using any tool you want, Chromecast, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and level up to the next cloud or your next job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for a seven-day free trial and 30% off of any plan you choose. Use promo code CLOUD at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code CLOUD at checkout. itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code CLOUD at checkout to try it free for seven days and save 30% off of any plan you choose. And now I'm done interrupting myself and Ned and our guest. Back to the show. Sarah, I've been involved in a bunch of migrations over the years. Um, haven't done a cloud migration as such, but plenty of, we got to pick this up from here and move it there. Everything from just, you know, a few servers to uh, entire data centers. These are painful projects, these migrations, always. <laughs> um, so you can do it short and painful. We're going to hammer it in as quick as we can. And everyone, no, no sleep. We're bringing in pizza. Let's make it go. And then on yep. Monday, we'll pick up the pieces of whatever it is that's not working. Uh, or you can stretch it out over time, um, kind of phase it in and try to be more careful about it, which you know, both approaches introduce their own kinds of risks. What, what was your strategy? How did you, you know, minimize the pain of you know downtime and maybe having to deal with IP addressing and what your team DNS looked like and getting the data picked up and moved. I, I better stop with the list of things now. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> um, I think that's where some of these migration specialist partners come into play because they can take some of the pain that their previous customers have had and bring them to your learnings, right? Because mm. like you say, data center migrations are probably something you maybe do maybe two years, every three years, or maybe not even at all for some people. So it's a whole skill set in itself to move your data center. So bringing in a partner that's done this before can help you minimize some of those issues and try and navigate the path. Like like you're saying, how do you move the data and do you just push it up the way on your internet pipe? Do you use mm -hmm. like something like Azure Databox? But how do you use something like Azure Databox? Because that's you taking a copy of your data as is right now and then shipping it through mm -hmm. the mail. So that's like maybe a three-day lead time till it again gets into Azure. So you're now three days out of date. Can your application deal with that? All those kind of things and, and kind of paths and ways you can do this are stumbling blocks. And that's where people, I've seen projects get stopped because people are too busy trying to decide, do we upload things or do we use Azure Databox or do we bin this or do we not take it on? And before you know it, you're like six months in and you're still having the exact same conversation. So having a partner that can bring in all of that experience and try and navigate that for you and stop you going down that rat hole or rabbit hole, um, you know, can help you, can really help you, to be honest. That's that's how I look at it. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really important point to hammer home because uh, I worked, you know, on a, for a regular customer as a sysadmin. And then I worked in the consulting space for a decent amount of time. And the thing that I always came back to was when you're a consultant, you do this all the time. This is something that you've done, you know, 20 times before, and you're going to do it 20 times again. And you might hopefully have learned a couple things, 
through that process. Whereas like the customer who hires you, they may only ever do this once, especially a data center migration. Like how many companies are going to be doing multiple data center migrations? Exactly. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense to, to bring someone on who has that expertise. The other thing you mentioned, and I just think this is kind of fun, is putting your data on a physical drive and then shipping it through, you know, <laughs> postal service or whatever to get it to the data center as opposed to pushing it up the pipe. It, it sounds ridiculous, but is that is that something you've actually seen customers do when they have a, like just a ton of data they have to move? Um, we've seen some customers do it um, for legacy data. So we've all got these big archive servers or sand storage of data that we know can be deleted, but our organization will not let us delete, right? Um <laughs> And that has to move too, right? So they want to move right. that up into the cloud and try and, you know, free up some space or whatever. So I've seen customers use that, use Azure Data Box to take that legacy data that's never changed, never been accessed for years either, um, and put that onto Data Box and put it into the cloud rather than saturate your internet pipe with the upload of that data because you can use, you know, your express route or your internet pipe for the more critical data, the data that you're actually using and it's really important to you. So, yeah. How yeah, you, data gravity is a real issue because your applications obviously need access to whatever data they use. And in like the case of the, the database server, if you move the database server, but not all the applications that are, that are using it, then you run into a real issue. Those applications, their performance is it's probably going to suffer a little bit. Yep. So was that an earlier analysis process we were talking about? one of really looking at where the data is and what applications are accessing it to try to make sure you move them all at once? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a prime example. You don't want to move your back-end server up to the cloud and then have your, you know, the, the front-end the other way, and then you have that latency issue. Um, so using that analysis tool and pairing servers up or coupling them up or however many, you know, go together is really, really super important because, again, I've seen customers do that they've moved you know one box up into the cloud and left the other one on prem and then they go it's really crap the performance isn't great the cloud <laughs> is rubbish and then suddenly you know it you're not moving to the cloud because they've done it wrong to be honest so um yeah you need to you need to make sure you do these things so that you don't get the wrong feedback or the wrong outcome that you want from it right how do you deal with the, the justifying the cost of being bringing someone in to help with the migration? Because that's just this is a big project that's going to take on a lot of people's time anyway. And now, if you're trying to sell, like you know what, we really need someone from the outside to come in and help us with this. I can just see a manager going, "Now nah, we're going to do it ourselves. I don't really want additional money." That's that's a hard one, right? But you you need to leverage the experience, play on the fact that yes, they'll they'll bring on all this experience. You'll still be able to, as an internal IT person, do the business as usual and keep the IT department running because there's tons still to do, right? Um, and just tell them that you know the the lead time as well. Like if you're running business as usual and a major migration project, things are going to slip and your timeline's going to maybe double or triple because you're. You, you're only one person and you've only got so many hours in the day. Um, so it's just, it's trying to justify that by saying we can shorten the lead time on how to do this project by if we spend X amount of money. Now, do you, do you see that outside resource as a project manager or managers primarily or technical expertise or both? A bit of both, to be honest. I think the best solution I've seen is if you're third party 
um, you know, migration partner comes in with an experienced project manager, experienced technical team, and then you match that with an experienced project manager that understands the processes and the people within your organisation, and then the same with the technical. So you kind of couple it up. And yes, it is doubling up the resources a bit, but that third party company doesn't know how your change request process work or who your who the go-to person is to talk to. So if you partner them up with someone internally, then that can be quicker as well. If that does that make sense? Uh. Uh, it, yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, I, Ned and I have both the, done consulting, and um, you know, I I know the value that I would bring to a project because I walk in the door as someone who knows the tech and who's done a few of these things, and so you you really do end up saving a lot of time time on the calendar. Let's put it that way to get the project done. Yep. Um, at the cost of bringing this person or people in to help you actually get it done in that timeline versus what you were saying, double or triple your deliverable timeline. So Mm -hmm. it it is a a trade-off, but the big win is you get the project done. And in IT, you need to have a window where that project gets completed or it just seems to stretch on forever. And if it goes too long, technology changes that can impact your project and you just never get the thing completed. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I've been on projects like that. <laughs> so uh, you you mentioned business as usual, like the person. If you do get to hire one of these external partners to help you with the migration, you still have your day job that you're responsible for. But at, at some point, you know, when the migration is done and that those experts go away to their next migration, now you're left with a cloud environment that you're also responsible for managing business as usual. And you have to develop those cloud skills. So I guess for those who are involved in the migration process, but maybe not necessarily driving it because they're not the the outside consultancy, at what point do you start diving in and learn about this cloud environment to prepare yourself? Um, I I think you need to shadow the third-party company a little bit. Obviously, you don't want to shadow them the whole project, but shadow them at certain points. Um, you know, make sure that when you're doing the, your statement of work, you actually build in time for that consultant from the third party to spend time upskilling and training your internal IT department. Because, like you say, these third party companies come in, deliver the project, and then leave, and there's no handover done. And suddenly you're left flapping with uh, an environment you've never seen before. You don't know how it works. And again, you're left to manage it. And if you don't do it right, they end up thinking the cloud's wrong or it's bad and then you're stuck, right? So I definitely um, encourage people to say in the statement of works, make sure there's a handover, make sure your technical staff are allowed time off of the business as usual and dedicate to shadowing that third party. Um, And also give them time to learn, make sure that they are allowed to have that wee test environment where they can go and spin up a virtual machine, you know, break it, learn from it, um, ask questions and and kind of just play. So you you need to split up your internal staff's time between business as usual, projects and learning. If you don't, you might deliver the project, but it's ultimately going to fail in the long term for me. Isn't it too bad that you have to point out, Sarah, that managers need to give their staff time to actually learn stuff? <laughs> but, but, the, but you have to point it out. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. And as far as your learning process, when you were learning all the cloud technologies, what was your process for learning it? Was there, Did you rely on mostly books or did you like just bang away on the keyboard or watch video? Like, how did you acquire these skills over time? 
Um, so it was a, ca- a combination of hands-on learning, breaking things and trying it, and reading the official Microsoft documentation, to be honest. Um, I think when I was starting three or four years ago, there wasn't the same community activities that are currently on place now. Like if you go into a search engine, you'll find blog posts, videos, you know, user groups, tons of tons of stuff. But that wasn't there for me three or four years ago. So it was very much hands-on learning and trying to read the official documentation and stuff. Um, nowadays, I do it differently. I, I upskill by, you know, listening to podcasts, reading blog posts, seeing other people's conferences and stuff like that. So it's been a combination. and. For me, I get bored if I'm sitting watching videos all the time, right? I need to actually go and do it hands-on and that's where I learn and that's where I remember. The muscle memory kind of comes in a bit. So I need to mix it up and not just stay with one medium to learn. Mm -hmm. Do you work on certifications at all as a way to push your learning forward or do you kind of leave certifications in their own bucket? Um, no, I think it's a good way of validating some of your skills um, and making sure that you know the best practices. Because let's face it, the exams are more around best practices, not real life, because we all do it <laughs> slightly different, right? But it tests your knowledge and it makes sure that you understand um, different bits of it. And I've learned weird stuff for exams that I'm probably never going to use because it's outside my comfort zone. You know, I know <laughs> random facts about data lake that I'm never going to do because I'm not that type of person. But I know that because I've had to learn it for the exam. So it's really valuable just having some kind of even level 100 knowledge of everything that goes on in Azure so that you can build that bigger picture when you're designing architecture or using it. Um, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, you mentioned an art being an architect as opposed to you know the the day to day engineering work, and I think if you are looking to progress up that ladder that you talked about at the at the top of the episode, one of the ways to progress is to go from that you know level whatever engineer to becoming a true cloud architect. Are there any other you know if you're trying to make that leap? Are there any other things you'd recommend uh, people develop uh, skill wise to to achieve that architect level in within their company? I think customer service skills, and that's going to sound really weird, but I think being Mm. able to interview someone, say, you know, say your HR department want a new system and being able to get the information out of them, like what they really need from that system and being able to translate that into technology is a skill a lot of people forget about and don't have. Um, You know, being able to read them, being able to lead them in the right questions, you know, being able to justify why you're suggesting something to them. So I think that general customer service and interaction with other people um, that are not technical is probably something that you really need to do as an architect because we can, we can learn the technology, right? We can do all that. We're really confident with that. But it's designing the right system for your end users. That's the really key thing for architecture, I think. Um, and that's where I think mm. the customer service comes in. Does that does that make sense? Does that sound right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it's something that's some people are naturally comfortable with, so it's not something they need to develop but i'm sure for you know the really nerdy engineers that do like to be heads down just in the tech all the time that might come as a bit of a wake-up call like if you're going to move out of that role into something where you're designing systems and working with other people you might need to i don't know be able to interact with other people in a healthy way (laughs) (laughs) one of the things uh, to to go back to the migration project and how when consulting companies are done, they they leave. Uh, one tactic I've seen is uh, the handoff 
is more of a, hey, we have a managed service. So <laughs> instead of learning any of these skills, you could just hand the project over to us and we'll manage it when you're done. Do, do you have, have you seen that? Do you have any general feelings about adopting a managed service for your cloud environment versus skilling up the people internally? Um, that's a tricky one, right? Because the managed service can really take some of that um, heavy lifting at the start of when you adopt the cloud away from you. But over time, you're going to just become de-skilled if you, you hand that off to someone else and you just look after the on-prem stuff. I'm kind of a fan of managed service contracts where every year they're responsibility gets less and your responsibility gets more mm. like so is that you know at the start they're quite really hands-on they take on all the calls but over time you start to upskill and you start to take on more responsibility and you know two years down the line three years down the line they go away and you're more comfortable with the environment I'm, I'm a fan of those types of contracts um in these big projects as well okay all right. Well, we're starting to get towards time. And one of the things that we like our guests to do is to sort of sum up some key takeaways for listeners out there. They're probably wrapping up their, well, not drive because we don't go anywhere right now, but they're wrapping up <laughs> their their run or their chore list or whatever. So what, what are three key takeaways that or action items that listeners could have at the end of the episode? So I think if you're doing a data center migration, um, auditing your environment is super key for all the reasons we've mentioned earlier on. Ensuring your staff are skilled up on the platform that you're moving on to, because eventually they're going to have to support this in some way or forum. Um, and never stop learning, right? Like the cloud is constantly evolving. You might know it today, but in a week's time, that could be completely <laughs> out of date. So you never have to stop learning and, you know, just keep trying and find your passion and find what your sweet spot is, is, is the three key takeaways, I think so. Okay. Well, great. If people want to know more about you, uh, where can they find your writing or videos or whatever, whatever you have out on the internet? So online, you'll find me um, as Techie Lass. So my Twitter, my blog, my YouTube channel um, are all that. And you can also get me if you want to reach out individually at techielass at microsoft.com. So that's my brand. That's how you find me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the consistency because I know that that can be very difficult at times to get the same name everywhere. I don't know if you just got lucky on that one. <laughs> awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Sarah Lean, for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. And virtual high fives to you listeners for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we'd love to hear them. Hit either of us up on Twitter at ECBanks or at Ned1313 or fill out the forum on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. If you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Till then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.